Hello, and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today, I'm joined by guest Tom DeMarco. Tom is a principal of the Atlantic Systems Guild, a technology think tank with offices in the United States, Great Britain, and Germany. He's the author of 10 books on organizational dynamics and the role of technology, plus five novels. His most recent work, just published this month, is a romance entitled The One-Way Time Traveler. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, happy to be here. So the reason for this phone call is that one of the listeners sent me a link to an article that you wrote, I think it was in 2011, called All Late Projects Are the Same. And there were a bunch of points in here that just popped off the page at me uh, that I, I just thought were super interesting. Your perspective is fascinating, and I, I just thought you the insights were great. So I wanted to uh, have you on the show to talk about those. Beautiful. I suppose the crux of the article is a line that I, a passage that I'd like to read so the listeners have some context. So bear with me while I do that. Okay. Uh, but you wrote, I thought all late projects were the same in that they were really estimation failures, not performance failures. I still believe that all late projects are the same, but for an entirely different reason. All projects that finish late have this one thing in common. They started late. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. <laughs> So can you can you unpack that a little bit? Because it sounds so blindingly obvious that it doesn't even make sense. But when you think through, it really does make a lot of sense. Well, it, it actually I hit, I came up with that observation that at Xerox one day I was consultant to Xerox and I uh, encountered this very angry user manager who had in, in, engendered a project uh, that ended up. Um, delivering late, uh, or maybe it hadn't delivered yet at the time I encountered it, but he was furious because he could, he said he could demonstrate that every day that the project was late cost him, and he had some fanciful number, you know, some thousands of dollars a day. Uh, and, and so I observed to him, well, you obviously started the project too late then. I mean, think about it. Uh, all the money you could have saved if you started it earlier, uh, and he was he was kind of flabbergasted by that, but but not satisfied. It was not an answer that satisfied him. Mm-hmm. But but the observation stems from the fact if the if the product really had value, uh, why had he waited so long? And the answer he I believe the answer very often the answer is that he's he's playing catch up. His competition has come up with something that he didn't have the guts, you know, just since he's not here, I can say this, <laughs> didn't have the guts to, um, to suggest himself, uh, something, uh, that, uh, he now is, is behind on, uh, and he can see that the competition is making money on it. Um, mm-hmm. projects that are started late and or started with an unrealistic finish date very often have the characteristic, uh, which evidently wasn't true in his case, but very often have the characteristic that the, the real reason for the tight scheduling is because the, the product, the thing that they're delivering, doesn't have terrific value. So, I mean, if it has huge value, uh, a little bit of lateness wouldn't matter. Uh, allowing enough time to do it right would make perfectly good sense. But if it's marginal, if it's mm-hmm. marginal in its value, and it's just barely worth anything, uh, then, of course, you have to build it on the cheap, which means uh, you set the deadline not 
based on, in spite of the fact that you say, oh, the deadline is fixed by the marketplace is demanding this uh, on such and such a date. <laughs> yeah. you, instead of uh, admitting up front, which is I'm only willing to spend enough money to fund the next you know, four months because if it were to take four and a half months, there's so little value that comes from this product uh, that uh, it wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't put me into the red. Now, why do we build, why do we contract out to people like your listeners mm-hmm. uh, pieces of software that aren't worth very much uh, and therefore have to be built on the cheap? And the answer is because the organization that's engendering these projects has that as its purpose. And the fact that they built all the good stuff years ago can't be allowed to stop them from continuing to uh, engender new projects because their jobs depend on it. So uh, the low-hanging fruit is gone, Mm -hmm. and we're now talking about small amounts of fruit very high up in the tree that are pretty bitter to taste. (laughs) And so we build projects that have small returns. That was the gist of the article. Uh, Mm -hmm. But all of it brought on by this... uh, this one angry contract uh, giver mm-hmm. who determined that he really was being screwed by the people that were late delivering the project. Uh, my observation was he, if it was so damn good, he should have started it earlier. <laughs> I'm sure everybody listening is familiar with, you know, getting a hair on fire email from some new prospect who needs to have, uh, you know, whatever, a Facebook clone by Christmas and mm-hmm. you know they have this insane insanely aggressive timeline that is totally unrealistic and it's a me too product I, I mean it's it's comical how often that happens so but let me ask you this let me let me sort of because we're a little bit talking about blame here what is the what is the software developers obligation do you think in a situation where the client is clearly asking for something that is which is going to deliver a marginal return and they're sure it cannot get done in the amount of time that has been allotted is there no culpability to the developer who accepts that project well i think he's got to squawk about the date and say i'll give it my best effort uh, i mean, i think back to the uh, uh one of the nas plan projects the, the five projects that the uh, faa engendered uh, to modernize the national airspace. Um, all five of them eventually went to litigation. And one of them uh, had a particularly interesting uh, characteristic, which is that the software, uh, the company that contracted for it, the manager of that company, uh, had a yellow light on schedule from day one to the end. <laughs> he never... I mean, he said, yeah, you know, we'll give it a shot. You're, you're insisting it has to be done and it can be done and we're as good as anybody. So we'll give it a shot. Uh, but I, I, I'm maintaining a yellow light on this, uh, because as far as I'm concerned, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in danger from day one. Uh, I don't think you can do a lot more than that. Um, uh, I think also that the people that in, engender these projects have their own problem within their own organization, which is uh, somebody else has asked them to get it done because he's got the very same dynamic. You know, mm-hmm. he he wants to be the, the, the instigator of projects and there aren't any really great ones on the 
uh, on the horizon. So, uh, so it's a, it's a it's a confederacy of dunces in a way. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, on the other hand, you know, we're all in this boat. Um, just between us, uh, the low hanging fruit is gone. Much of it. Uh, the really ambitious things are being done by really ambitious organizations like Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a lot of us are left with uh, small projects that are, you know, a fairly marginal value and have to be done as best we can. And I think the best thing you can do uh, is to um, turn on the yellow light and say, um, if you press me, I'll do it my best efforts, give it my best effort, but I, I'm not happy with the, mm-hmm. the schedule, which is what we're doing. That's what most of your listeners are doing all the time. Yes. I actually don't do that. I have been a software developer for, you know, 15 years and a long time ago, I stopped agreeing to deadlines whatsoever. And mm-hmm. if that was not going to be acceptable to the client, I just wouldn't take the project. I'd just say, look, yeah. this is a collaboration. It's going to take at least six months. There's no way we can do this faster than six months. And there's mm-hmm. no reason to believe that I can control the schedule because you're as much of a part of this project as I am. And if you guys get busy or go dark, that's going to affect the timeline. So I can keep you up to date with how we're doing, but I will not agree to a particular deadline. You know, I, I, I just came across yesterday an analogy to this. I'd like to to, to, to try it out on you. Mm-hmm. A, a, a friend of ours, uh, a woman friend, um, uh, met somebody at our house who was a contractor who was uh, building an addition to the house. And they, they hit it off and uh, uh, seemed to be a couple after a, a short period of time. And then he contracted to build a garage for her or something like that. And he did it on a fixed price basis, and he was late. And he said, "You know, I, you know, I, I did my best, but uh, if I'm going to finish, I'm going to need a little bit more money." And they broke up over this, and furious, both of them furious. Of course. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, if you're building a garage for somebody that you have a romantic relationship with, you don't do it on a fixed price basis, because a fixed price contract ends up one of three ways. Either it's late and the contractor respects the, uh, who, who has to respect the, uh, the contract, uh, ends up swallowing and, and, uh, swallowing the cost and, uh, uh, and feels at the end that he's been gypped. He's given greater value than he received. Or it works the other way. The other party ends up paying and then she feels that she's given greater value than he received, than she received. Mm-hmm. Or the third possibility is it's fixed, it, it finishes exactly on time. Well, that seems like such an, a, a, a marginal possibility as to be excluded. So what you've got is a relationship that is bound to end up with somebody feeling bad. As opposed to, you know, if you really care about a client, or if you really care about your girlfriend, your boyfriend, um, you, you say, look, we'll, we'll just share the risk. We'll do the best we can, uh, and it costs what it costs. That, that sounds blasé, and yet if you want the relationship to last, it's got to be that way. Well, there's a fourth option, which is to not do the work. Because I'm a big fan of fixed prices, and you, you, your description of the situation is absolutely 100% correct. If there's marginal gain to be had, if there's a very little profit margin for both parties, 
and the the ultimate price ends up moving slightly one way or the other away from that exact you know as you put it like you know it finishes exactly on time time uh, if there's more margin there, then everybody's still happy. It's sort of like you mm-hmm. described earlier with, um, you know, if, if people are, people shouldn't be starting up these projects that have marginal, uh, ROI because they, they just shouldn't do it. Like it's not a question of, of, oh, you know, our estimate was bad or you started late. It's like, this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So if the garage is not really worth $20,000 to the girlfriend, then she shouldn't get it built in my opinion. Well, for that, you don't need a fixed price. What you need is a credible estimate. So the contractor could have said, look, it's probably going to cost us uh, on the order of $20,000 if it's not worth it. But but it shouldn't be a fixed price contract because of the relationship. I mean, the relationship that we're trying to preserve is one uh, that requires us to trust each other, and mm-hmm. if the trust breaks down, well, the relationship breaks down. But there's no reason to have a, an artificial way to uh, to terminate this or to endanger this relationship. Uh, and, and you know, she might well have decided that she didn't want to build it without a fixed price. I mean, mm-hmm. that's fair, and that, that again suggests to me that it wasn't worth a lot more than what the estimate came in at. So. Uh, exactly. She, she had a lot of wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but I, I think estimating is a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a, uh, it's something you need to be able to do even very early in the project. I, I was, I was uh, talking to somebody from Apple the other day. Uh, the, the other day when you're my age could be a, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I was talking to, uh, this manager at Apple and, and she referred to, um, the very early estimate you have to make when you you really don't have a lot to uh, to go on, and she called it I was charmed by the term a seat of the skirt estimate, <laughs> which is uh, that's a, you know that's a characteristic of Apple where there are a lot of women managers that uh, many of the cliches that we the male cliches that have worked their way into the way we talk uh, in general are reversed at Apple. But anyway, <laughs> but you do need these these very early seat of the skirt estimates. Uh, because um, uh, he, 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 just to, just to understand whether there could be enough value here to to justify that kind of money. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem, I think, the problem comes from the cost being too close to the return, so that the yeah. that the margins are just razor thin everywhere, all the way around. Yeah. So to me, the you know switching it back to uh, to so people who are doing independent software developers who are doing, you know, maybe three to six month projects, um, that you're kind of setting yourself up for the exact scenario you described earlier. Uh, if you're giving an hourly estimate, oh, you know, we think it's going to be $50,000. We think it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but that's what we think. And they, they are, uh, putting all that risk on the buyer. The buyer is forced to make a buying decision based on the estimate because that's the only number they have. And they don't listen to, oh, well, maybe it will be more. And mm-hmm. in, in fact, a lot of times, I think 50% of the time, it goes over by 100%. So mm-hmm. that you can understand, of course, that that exceeds the amount that they would have been willing to pay for it in the first place. So if you said to them in the first place, well, we think it's going to be $100,000 and and we'll stand behind that price, then the client is in a position to make a real decision and say, well, that's not worth it to us. So we'll just take a pass. 
or they can say, yeah, that sounds great. And if, if it sounds great to them, then that implies that it's worth more than that to them by a reasonable margin. And the developer does need to have some sort of estimate, I think internally, mentally about whether or not they can make a profit with based on how much work needs to be done given a budget of a hundred thousand dollars. So I feel like, so I think, I think ideologically, I feel like developers shoulder a little bit more of the responsibility than I think you think. Um, Maybe I'm wrong about that though, but I feel like as a professional, like if there was a professional body for software developers, this would be the ability to do a credible estimate, as you put it, would be a requirement. Because I think historically people want to deliver the lowest estimate. So they, there's an automatic, uh, sort of pressure to underestimate how much work is going to be, be required. So, and I believe that that is, I believe that right there is the reason why most projects go over. Well, I'm not sure I buy that. Um, I mean, one of the things that, one of the things I observed early on is, uh, people are, uh, uh, managers, users, buyers, those who let contracts are uh, often a pos- in, in a position of enticing those who take on the work uh, to uh, come up with a, a lowball estimate. Uh, not a lowball estimate, but a, but what they they themselves might realize is not a doable estimate because we work so much harder when we get a little bit behind, a- and that suggests. To me, and here I'm talking more about people who are not, not working on contract, people who are employees. Right. Uh, so I've got a young manager who works for me, and he comes up and I say, how long do you think it's going to take you? And he says, three months. And I know, I'm, a, I'm the boss here. I know it can't be done in three months. But I let him, I let him do that because of this rather cynical attitude that as he, as he starts to realize how far behind he is, he'll just work overtime. Um, that suggests that we, as a uh, as a community, the community of software developers, uh, have have trained our managers and our uh, buyers um, to uh, to go through this mechanism because we've trained them to do it because we're we're responding like such chumps by working overtime. <laughs> um, I agree. Yes. Yeah. O- overtime is a, a, a is a. Particularly in a, in, you know, in a within a corporation, overtime is a sign of terrible disease. Uh, I mean, something has gone terribly wrong. Great companies do not work overtime. Mm. Uh, I mean, they, you'll see instances of it as you get near to uh, delivery. Mm-hmm. But chronic overtime is not a sign of a great company. It's a sign of a company that's that's got a diseased culture of. Uh, using each other and uh, um, um, putting pressure uh, because we don't have a better idea of how to uh, to motivate people or how to get things done. Mm, yeah, I totally agree with that. At the same time, we're talking about this. There, there are some things that are happening which you've got to stop and think about this. Um, I, I I do a lot of drawing. I, I like to I draw my covers or books and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, I use a piece of drawing software called uh, Procreate that runs on a, uh, a an Apple, uh, an iMac Pro with an Apple Pencil. Mm-hmm. It's the most beautiful piece of software I've ever used. It's got a beautiful human interface. It's solid as a rock. It's beautifully designed, beautifully conceived, beautifully documented. Um, it's just a wonderful piece of work. It costs $12. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, what the hell happened here? This would cost to build it on a one-off basis would have cost in my day, you know, six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, it gets sold for for twelve dollars. <laughs> and it, it leads it, after years and years of wondering why why software costs so much. I'm left wondering why it costs so little in the modern age. There are a couple of things going on, but one of the most important ones is that the people who are building this software, it's a, it's a little company in, I don't, I don't know anything about this company. I've never been there. I don't know a per, single person who works for it. They're in Tasmania, uh, Australia. But the people who have built this product have clearly had terrific tools at their disposal in order to build it. And I think that's why a $6 million project can be done for $12 a pop times not very many buyers. And there aren't a lot of people who do serious professional drawing on iPads. And I think what's happening is that the people who are achieving great things today are assembling terrific sets of, I said tools, but I don't really mean tools in the sense that we use this for software development tools. I mean libraries of components. Mm-hmm. And these libraries of components are uh, have gone way beyond what we ever thought the so-called reusable software would would do. So, so what I look at, what I see from this is that there's a big shift happening in software development that the prosperers uh, are not the people who've got the best skills or who work the hardest, but who have the most diligently assembled sets of components that they can then use on a limited set of kinds of projects. You can't you can't have a, a component set that, that allows you to bid on just any old project, right. but. Uh, you could have a component set which was elegant for a certain class of projects, and you bid just on those. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, a, a shift, a sea change in the way the software industry works. Now, that, of course, uh, plus the uh, plus things like the App Store, which enable you to build software for multiple users. But I think the key thing, the key difference is the uh, the amount of uh, a componentry that are being assembled, that's being assembled. If you've ever seen a, a, a product called Candy Crush, it's a game, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> a free game, uh, that just survives on advertising revenue. It, it too is an, you know, an amazing, it too is a multi-billion dollar project if you build it on a one-off basis, at least in my age. So, again, components, the, the assembly of components is the thing that distinguishes between those who are prospering today and those who aren't. I 100% agree with that. And, and to pull it back to one-off <clears throat> products or projects, the the notion of assembling a, a amazing stack of tools and libraries and frameworks and platforms that you become expert with and can deliver business value with, the notion of assembling all of that and then billing yourself out by the hour, not that that's what you're talking about, but just mm-hmm. in general, that's the topic of this podcast. Mm-hmm. The notion of doing that, which I think I 100% agree with you that that is, that is the way to, to become a better, you know, better at delivering value as a software developer is to take advantage of this wealth of, 
this giant toolbox basically that comes to us for free uh, to turn around and then say, okay, and now I'm going to turn on a clock and, and, and bill $150 an hour to use this amazing library of tools that I've assembled and learned. It makes mm-hmm. no sense to me. It would, it, there's no financial motivation to actually put that stuff together to assemble that. It's a good point. Yeah. If, 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 to, to take advantage of that, if you, if you really are a step ahead of your competition, then what you'd really like to do is build a price that your competition couldn't build at a price that your competition couldn't match, but that leaves you plenty of room to make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, come on, Jonathan, you expect all the things that I say to agree with all the other things <laughs> I say. No. So I'd love, I'd love to shift gears a little bit because you make a comment okay. early in the article uh, that I'd like to, I'd like to quote here. And you said by the 1990s, a significant part of my practice was litigation support, which was a natural consequence of raising my rates to the level that only legal departments could afford. So I got a, a whiff of humor in there, but it, I, but I assume that you were being literal. There's no such thing of humor that doesn't have some truth at the heart of it. I suppose that's true. So yes, <laughs> it, it was a part of my conscious process of, of steering myself that way because I was uh, trying to work a little and make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, I, I had a slightly different uh, goal, which is litigation uh, enables you to pour through the bones, the, the archaeology of it has gone on and come to understand it. Well, you can see from the books that I've written and the articles I write that 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 was uh, invaluable information to me. So, I, I mean, that was a win-win for me. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it paid well, uh, but it also uh, gave me uh, grist for my, my mill. Interesting. And now, was it a chicken or egg thing? Did you, did you raise your rates and then you found that it changed the type of clients that you attracted? Or did you know you were going to go in that direction and they were like, oh, and, and I, they can afford more, so I raised my rates? Um, well, uh, I'll answer a slightly different question mm-hmm. uh, than the one you a- asked, which is, uh, how did I ever set my rates? Well, I set my rates because when I was working too much, I raised my prices. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's a pretty reasonable thing to do mm-hmm. so that I ended up working an amount that that made sense to me and earning no more money than I really needed. It, 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 the upsetting thing to me about about the world of work is that uh, most of the people that I encounter uh, are working harder and longer than they really want to in order to make more money than they really need. To impress people they don't really like. <laughs> yeah, to impress people they don't really like. That's wonderful. Um, but as a, uh, as a contractor, you, you're not bound by that. So you can, uh, if things start to, to go well for you and you don't need a tremendous amount of money, you can uh, take some of your payment in time. Uh, which always felt good to me. I think that was a correct thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. The The pushback that you'll get from the majority of people is that, you know, if they double their rates, they wouldn't lose half their clients. They'd lose all their clients. Yeah. S- certainly, you, uh, for whatever reason, you're, the people who are considering hiring you saw value in the exchange. So, you mm-hmm. know, so that's great. And I would urge folks who are listening to take that to heart because I agree that people work too much for too little and mm-hmm. it's partly their own psychology and mm-hmm. may, maybe, maybe more than partly, you know, where they just believe that 
no one would hire them if they raised the rate. So they believe that they're not worth it. I talked to plenty of people who just, just couldn't bring themselves to look in the mirror and say, Oh, I'm worth two X what I'm currently charging. Mm-hmm. Just, it's like a, an esteem thing. Uh, and, and there I talked to lots of people who any moment of idle time feels like they're losing money. And mm-hmm. I, I believe that that is, that is, that has got to be from, uh, watching the clock, you know, as when I mm-hmm. used to work by the hour years ago, you know, I'd start the clock, I'd do some work and I'd get done and I'd be like, ah, oh, I just made 400 bucks. Sweet. And mm-hmm. anytime the clock wasn't on, I was felt like I was losing money. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that is a, a terrible, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's terrible for you because it, mm-hmm. you know, because you're, I see the, the, the self-worth get attached to the income, which gets attached to the clock. So if you want to, you know, whatever, if you're feeling down or, or even if you're, or if the clock isn't ticking and, you know, the meter isn't running, then the self-esteem goes down along with it. And Mm. it's a very complicated psychology. And I, and, and, and at the end of the day, nobody wants your hours. They want the thing that they want. They want you to build. They don't, you know, honestly, everybody will talk about hours, but if you could snap your fingers and deliver a $6 million software project overnight, they'd be happy to pay you for it. They don't want Mm -hmm. your, they don't want it to take a year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot going on there, but, um, well, I, I think something that is implicit in what you say uh, is that, that we all believe, uh, that the market, um, that's out there that we have to interact with is highly elastic. And my experience has been that it's less elastic than you think that, um, we, uh, could raise our prices, uh, somewhat and not, and not get, and not experience nearly the feet, the, the pushback that you, uh, that, that we fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it certainly was true of me. I mean, I, I, I never raised a price that I, that I really succeeded in pushing down the demand. Uh, and I, I think back to a, uh, an example of that from early in my life. I, I, I interviewed for a job in, uh, in Sweden. My interview took place in the United States because the company that was uh, um, providing the, um, the services to the Swedish company was an American company. And I hit it off with the manager, and, and I liked the idea. I wanted to go to Sweden. And so we seemed to be um, in... Uh, on the same wavelength, and he said to me something I've never forgotten, which is, "What do I have to pay you to make you happy?" And I think what that said to me was that I sealed the deal with him based on something other than price, mm-hmm. and he would have to live with whatever he had to live with in his mind. And I think that's very often the attitude of the people we're dealing with. They're making their minds up to go with us because of a certain chemistry, because of a certain trust, uh, and money is, you know, fourth in the list of things that they're concerned about. So I think the market is less elastic than any of your people believe it is, and that uh, raising prices, particularly if they if they find themselves, I mean, you can't raise a price if you're not getting enough business, but if you start to uh, to be working hard and have uh, multiple clients, uh, it's time to raise your prices. I, I agree. If I, maybe I'm misunderstanding the term elastic, but I would think that you mean more elastic. The, the market's more elastic uh, than I think. Or do I have it backwards? See. Yeah. <laughs> 
well, he kept a programmers here talking economics. <laughs> One of the two of us has got it wrong. But what your point your point is that the market it, the market is much less price sensitive than than we might have. The market for the kind of services we provide is less price sensitive. Thank I, you. Now yes. you're right. I can't remember exactly which way that that term goes, but but I, I yes, I a hundred percent agree with your point, and I and and to just call it out. Mm-hmm. The word trust that you used, you met with this person, Mm. they trusted you for some reason, you distinguished yourself from the other available options. I'm sure there were other people who did what you did at the time. And for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, you distinguished yourself as someone and they were like, this, this is the guy, this is the person we want to work with. How much is it going to be? Yeah. And you know, the flip side of that is if you, if not you, but the dear listener, if you present yourself as in a way that is indistinguishable to your clients. In other words, you know you're different than your competitors, but if, you're, if your potential customers cannot tell the difference in a meaningful way between you and the next firm, then the only thing that they're going to understand is price because it's pretty easy to understand you know, what's more expensive and what's less expensive. Yeah, if you find yourself in that situation, you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. You can't be a commodity provider. Or, I mean, you don't want to be a commodity you don't want to be. provider. Right. Yeah. All right, this has been amazing. I should uh, I should let you get back to your day, but before we do that, I would love if you could let the listeners know where they can find out more about you and your new novels. How did you get into that? Oh, I'm a storyteller. I mean, I think that's uh, that's been true of of my technical books as well as the uh, the non technical. I mean, a, a great technical book is the story of an idea, and you don't just say this is what I discovered, but you tell something about the journey that got you there. Um, I, 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 the AtlanticSystemsGuild.com would be the, the technical side of me, and TomDeMarco.com would be the uh, the rest of it. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're, uh, as, as you said, the the new uh, novel. Now it's, it's an interesting thing about readership. Uh, readership has become more and more female over the years, and so. Uh, I have changed uh, the way I write a, a bit as well. So this is a a, a romance. Now it's set in a future time, uh, so it's got an element of uh, being a speculative novel as well. But it's also uh, a romance. I, I thought about what it would be like to take a a person from the present time and thrust him forward into a period which was matriarchal instead of patriarchal, uh, and that's the that's the dilemma of the time. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thanks for coming on, Tom. If you'd like to learn more about how to ditch hourly billing, please go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free email course. Again, that URL is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Thanks. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.